Have you ever been caught up in a vicious circle? Uh, You know the scenario, one bad decision which leads to a bad outcome, which leads to bad consequences, uh, that then feeds back around the loop and makes the first thing even worse. And around we go over and over again. Uh, You're not doing enough exercise, so you put on weight, which means it's harder to exercise, which makes you feel down in the dumps, which makes you eat cake, so you put on even more weight and exercise even less, and around the cycle goes. Life is full of cycles like that. Relationships are full of cycles like that. Marriage is full of cycles like that. Our economy is full of cycles like that. One little bad decision leads to another and another and another, if only you'd known at the start. (coughs) Now, this morning we are starting our series on Judges, and this Old Testament book is all about vicious circles and bad outcomes. Because of that, you might get the feeling it is a negative kind of book. There is no doubt it is certainly an M-rated kind of book, maybe even MA15+. If it was a movie, apart from the exciting bits with great heroes like Samson and Gideon, uh, you might find yourself around the middle part of the movie walking out or being tempted because there are such ugly stories of violence. There are war stories with lots of blood. Worst of all, I reckon, there are disturbing stories of violence against women, which if that resonates with your own experience at all, you might want to avoid or at the very least read ahead, be aware of what's coming because certainly even if not for your own sake, you may not want younger kids to be listening to some sections. But rest assured, it's a mature book. It's not a book that's in any way affirming that kind of violence. Exactly the opposite. Because it's describing for us in shocking detail how low the cycle of Israel's breakdown has gone. This book is the story of a spiral of vicious circles that end up in a vicious mess. It's a story from way back in the history of Israel. The descendants of Abraham who have been promised a land of their own as the people of God's special blessing. They have been captive in Egypt. Moses has led them to freedom in the book of Exodus and given them God's law. The book of Joshua tells the story of Joshua who leads them into the first phase of conquering the promised land. And now Joshua is dead and gone and it's up to the next generation to finish the job. And friends, it is a sad story. It's a bad story. It's a story about their compromises, about their shortcuts, about the way they have traded the covenant God made with their forefathers for convenience and compromise. Over and over again, that's the cycle that repeats seven times through the book. It's about the way in their compromise with the people around them, the Israelites, it seems, are hell-bent on keeping up with the Canaanites and not being distinctive at all. And let me tell you, if there wasn't some glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel it would be pretty grim reading. Now you'll notice there from the very first verse of chapter 1, if you turn there, that after Joshua dies, 
The Israelites asked the Lord, who do you want to go up first to take on the Canaanites? And look, right from what happens next, you might sniff something slightly weird. Because no sooner does God give the tribe of Judah a rousing word of encouragement, something a little odd happens. Who do you want to go first against the Canaanites? And God says, verse 2, Judah will go up. I've given the land into their hands. Now, what more do you want? It is an ironclad guarantee from God himself. Well, in verse 3, the Canaanite men are not quite so sure, so they say, we want someone to come with us. You Simeonites come too. Maybe just the first tiny little hint, you see, that the promise of God is not quite enough for them. But on we go. Verse 4, they attack the Canaanites at Bezek and they win. And just to add a bit of colour and first-hand drama, the story of King Adonai Bezek in verses 5 to 7, who ends up missing his thumbs and his big toes, begging in Jerusalem, which even he admits is poetic justice, given that he's done exactly the same thing to 70 other kings himself. Now look, already there is the vibe of the book. Gruesome details. Gets worse. Hope you're coping so far. Verse 8, these men of Judah and friends attack Jerusalem as well, the home at that stage of the Jebusites, and they take it, which is, of course, the start of that very long history, the city that becomes Israel's capital, and to this day still is, kind of. From there, it's down to the south in verse 9 to take on the Canaanites in the hill country, the Negev, the southern desert. Hebron, verse 10, against the three generals, Sheshai and Hyman and Talmai, and then Debir. And now look, the point is, as a military campaign, so far this is going very, very well, as the ongoing story of Israel's conquest of the promised land. God's promises are paying off, especially for the happy young couple, Axa and Othniel, who you meet in verses 12 to 15, Axa asks her dad for a favour, one of the great generals of Israel, and, and dad gives her not just a field, but the upper and lower springs of the Negev as well, which they took from the people of kiriath Sefa. Not just a patch of dry ground, but irrigation as well. Then the, the in-laws of the family of Moses are taken care of in verse 16, nice patch near Arad. And things are going along well, at least from the point of view of the invading Israelites. Verse 17, Zephath falls, then Gaza, and Ashkelon, and Ekron. The Lord was with them, verse 19, these men of Judah, just as he promised. Until in the middle of verse 19, in the midst of all these huge winds, something unexpected Sudden change of tone because it seems the ironclad promises of God are brought undone by the ironclad chariots of the people on the plains. Just stop a second, take a close look at it. Judges chapter 1 verse 19 because it doesn't make any sense, does it? The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now, you've got to say that's a serious upgrade for a chariot. 
the Iron Age has hit and suddenly these men of Judah who have been tackling every other army with overwhelming confidence and trust in the promises of God, they are brought to a standstill by new technology because surely the God of Israel doesn't stand a chance against iron-wheeled chariots with all kinds of sharp pointy bits on them which is where the rot sets in. From verse 21 onwards, with a few small exceptions, from here on, it's like following the Broncos in the NRL, loss after loss after loss, with only the occasional bright spot. Worse still, compromise after compromise after compromise. Verse 21, the Benjamites, however, the tribe of Benjamin, they did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, as, as these words are being written, to this day the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites, which might sound like a, a nice example of tolerance, except that God has already told the Israelites not to compromise. Verse 27, Manasseh, another tribe of Israel, they didn't drive out the people of Beth Shan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo, nor their surrounding settlements. Because the Canaanites, you see, were apparently determined to live in that land, uh, unlike the more obliging Canaanites in some other places who were flexible enough just to move on. These guys were stubborn. Later on, verse 28, the Israelites, as they grow stronger, they press them into forced labour, but they never drive them out completely, which is going to be the start of a problem. Verse 29, tribe of Ephraim. Same story in Giza. Tribe of Zebulun, verse 30. Instead of pushing them out, the people of the land, a neat compromise, forced labour, a cheap workforce. And on it goes. Asherites, verse 31, a whole list of their failures. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, verse 32, because they did not drive them out. And the Naphtalites too, verse 33. And the tribe of Dan, verse 34, not allowed to come down to the plains by the Amorites. Although as these rights again grew stronger, they pressed them into forced labour. In short, the promised land, which Israel was meant to own for themselves so they could be distinctive and separate and holy to God, ends up a patchwork, as you can see on the map. Which brings us then to chapter 2 and a message from God through an angel who appears at Bochim. He's going to give a God's eye view. Now, do you really think iron chariots are too hard for God? I mean, he was fine with the wooden chariots of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Is it that iron is just a little bit harder? Just, just over God's limit, maybe. And those Canaanites who were so determined to hang around, their determination, is that just a smidge or two beyond God's capacity? Well, listen to the angel. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors, says God. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? See, the problem isn't the iron chariots or the stubborn Canaanites. 
The problem is Israel's disobedience, their refusal to trust God and his covenant promises. And so God says, because of that, I'm not going to drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares for you. At which point the people just burst into tears, which is why they call the place Bokim, which means weepers, cry town, which I suspect limited its future tourist potential as a happy place for a honeymoon. Going to cry town for a honeymoon? All of which then brings us at last to the cycle I was talking about at the start. Or better still, the downward spiral that gives the book of Judges such a distinctive structure. It's a book that that tells seven stories of Israel's regional leaders, the judges, each structured around exactly this same cycle as the people of Israel co-mingle with the nations around them. It's a cycle that's summarised for us in verses 6 to 23 here in Judges chapter 2. And if you did look at that video in growth groups during the week, the video linked in the study guide, uh, I think it was captured perfectly by the guys at Bible Project in a simple little little diagram and video. With Joshua dead, verse 8, everything goes pear-shaped as the next generation just forgets what God has done for Israel. And they do evil, verse 11, and serve the Baals, the fertility idol gods of Canaan. And so God, verse 13, is angry and hands them over to their enemies which brings them then great distress and they repent, verse 15. And so the Lord raises up judges, verse 16, who save them from their enemies. And guess what? Verse 17, as soon as they're safe again, they're at it again and the cycle repeats. So we're going to just quickly watch from the Bible Project video on the screen, just that little bit with the cycle on your screen at home if you're zooming. Uh, Take a look as a reminder. This This part part of of Israel's Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. The story we're going to see over and over and over again in Judges getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, I don't know if you noticed those repeated words in that section. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, verse 11. They forsook the Lord and followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them, verse 12. They forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, verse 13. They prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them, verse 17. Following other gods and worshipping them, verse 19. Which is why, verse 21, God is not going to bother driving the enemies out before them because he's giving them exactly what they've chosen. And so the iron-wheeled chariots will get in the way and the strong-wheeled Canaanites will be a nuisance. But most of all, it's just the simple desire, the temptation to compromise 
that brings them undone. And, and the fact that where they can, they domesticate the temptation and they make the Canaanites around them their gardeners and their cooks and their housekeepers and their husbands and their wives. Because life is so much easier that way and they are just so sexy and good looking. It's a lifestyle choice. And of course ultimately make the gods of the Canaanites their own. Which is where we end with the summary in chapter 3 verse 5 and 6. Chapter 3 verse 5, there they are living among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites and there is no difference. They took their daughters in marriage, verse 6, and gave their own daughters to their sons, which again sounds like such a great example of multicultural tolerance unless you're convinced that the God of Israel is the rightful God of everyone because you'll notice the natural consequence in those last four words of verse 6. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. No difference. This tiny decision by tiny decision in a more and more vicious circle, they decide that keeping up with the Canaanites is better and easier and much more desirable than being the distinctive people of God. Now please keep in mind, if you've been part of our last series about the big picture of the Bible, Uh, Here we are in what we've been calling episode two. On the screen, uh, there'll be the diagram you might have seen in the study guide and hopefully before. We're here in the very early days of the old covenant that God made with Israel. And you might have noticed explicitly at the start of chapter two and the end of chapter two as well that that covenant is mentioned and that covenant is already in trouble. They're hardly into the promised land and God says to them, I said, I said I'd never break my covenant with you but you've disobeyed me and made a covenant with the people of the land instead. It is a covenant relationship with God that's rocky right from the start, those earliest days. And the problem is with Israel. It's a problem that the judges can't fix. It's only ever going to be a stopgap solution. And it's not until we come to Jesus in episode 3 that we meet the one Israelite leader who comes to save, who lives faithfully himself all the way through and does something that brings the prospect of permanent change and a breaking of that cycle of sin and death and God's judgment. In his death on the cross, punished for his people, a purifying sacrifice that brings forgiveness and then his resurrection to a new kind of life and his pouring out of that long-promised Holy Spirit that brings the real prospect of a change of heart as the people of the new covenant in episode 4. So I want to ask you this morning, what about your own vicious circles? What about your own downward spirals? Have you just given up trying? I'm not saying there's an instant way out of them because we're still terribly human, aren't we? And we're not yet living beyond our struggles in episode five. But we are on the way there. And there is hope and there is change. 
because of the Holy Spirit who will actually join in fighting our struggles with us. Maybe you're caught up in the pornography cycle and you, you just struggle to get out of it. You don't want to be in it, but it's like a vortex. Maybe you're caught up in an argument cycle in your marriage, a cycle of frustration, anger and resentment and explosion and then silence and then making up and forgiving and trying again. So hard. Because you keep finding it hasn't changed and the frustration and the anger build up all over again. And, And so you know all too well, we all know cycles are so easy to fall into. But look, here is the hope in those situations. It all starts with that decision to stop worshipping the same gods that the world does and set your eyes on Jesus instead. Stop worshipping the idols the world does. Not so much stone idols, we're much more sophisticated than aren't we? But idols of the heart. The idol of just fitting in with the people around us. The idol called love is love and you can just love what you like and that makes it right. The idol of comfort, of prosperity. The idol of food and luxury. The idol of family and home to the exclusion of anything and anyone else. The idol of self, self-fulfilment, satisfaction. The most important person in the world is me. Eugene Peterson, in one of his last books, he looked at the world and he put it this way. He says, There is little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. People aimless and bored amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets headlines. Aimless, bored, Self-amusing lives. Lives spent living for nothing more than the number of likes on their latest Instagram post. Is that what you really want? See, we're called to step out of that when we turn to the Lord Jesus as new covenant people. That's what it looks like to break the cycle. But of course there is a battle involved. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, it's a battle fought with the help of God's spirit in putting to death our sinful human nature, crucifying it. Here's what he says to new covenant people like us. So I say, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do just whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Working through the book of Judges is going to challenge us as new covenant followers of Jesus to get serious about breaking the cycle by keeping in step with the Spirit. Not just living like the Canaanites do, but getting serious about keeping in step with the Spirit, putting to death their own sinful natures. Getting serious about what it actually means to put Jesus first over and above the subtle idols that end up pushing him aside. To break out of our vicious circles and cycles and live in a way that marks us out as different in a lost and empty world that's worshipping all the wrong stuff. Judges is a tough book. It's going to be worth the ride. So stick with us over the next few weeks as we're reminded that keeping up with the Canaanites was always a bad idea and it always will be.